Thank you for choosing to listen to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. Each of these messages were given by various faculty, staff, and friends of Emmaus Bible College. To view each series as a whole, or for more information about similar Emmaus ministries, please visit concerninghim.com. That's C-O-N-C-E-R-N-I-N-G-H-I-M.com. Thanks for joining us in our study of the gospel according to Matthew. I wonder, when's the last time that you saw an exorcist? I don't mean the last time that you saw the movie, The Exorcist, but when is the last time that you saw a person in the profession of exorcism? That's right, casting out demons. Well, for a lot of us, myself included, uh, the answer is, well, never. Um, for a lot of us, we don't give much thought to the unseen realm, the, uh, the world of angels and demons. Uh, when we get sick, we go to the doctor, not an exorcist. Now, this puts us at a disadvantage when reading our text for today, which centers around demons and exorcism. Now, the basic plot is that we have a three-way fight, and it may be helpful to think of a triangle with each corner standing in opposition to the other two corners. One angle represents the demonic realm. The next, Jesus and his disciples. Now, these two are clearly opposed to one another. Uh, everybody knows that Jesus and the demons don't get along, and they're constantly fighting, with Jesus being the stronger. But we also have another team, or an, another corner, and that is, uh, well, our text calls them the Pharisees. Of course, it's well known from what we've read so far that they are in opposition to Jesus and his disciples. But what often goes unappreciated is that they're also against the first angle, the first corner, uh, the world of the demons. One of the most illuminating pieces of background information on uh, the text in front of us, uh, we're going to be in Matthew 12, is, is the prevalence of exorcists in antiquity. We get it from extra-biblical sources, uh, things outside the Bible, uh, but more importantly, the Bible itself also attests to the uh, frequency of exorcisms, even from people outside of Jesus and his movement. We get, uh, for example, like in the book of Acts, the seven sons of Sceva, whom Luke describes as itinerant Jewish exorcists. Uh, Jesus not only directs our attention to people like them, um, in, in our text when he describes your sons casting out demons. Uh, but notice very carefully, uh, as we are about to read it, that he does not describe them as charlatans. So we have a triangle of opposition, three teams standing in three corners, each one opposed to the others, the demonic realm, Jesus and his followers, and then the Pharisees slash antagonistic Jewish exorcists. So, as we read this text, keep your eye out for how this basic plot unfolds. The third corner of the triangle, the Pharisees, are really going to be put in an awkward position uh, because they can see clearly that Jesus and his disciples are at war with the demonic realm, but they don't reason that the enemy of their enemy must be their friend. So, pay attention to how they interpret the evidence and how Jesus responds, starting in uh, Matthew 12, verse 22. Then they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished and said, Could this be the son of David? 
But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Well, then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And he answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. The Queen of the South will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom, and now something greater than Solomon is here. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, swept clean, and put in order. Then it goes and takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. That is how it will be with this wicked generation." While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak with you. He replied to them, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, we certainly have a lot of uh, confusing material in these uh, 29 verses, but I hope you were able to catch the basic plot line. Instead of the Pharisees concluding that the enemy of their enemy must be their friend, uh, they say that this all must be some big conspiracy, a big trick to get them to put down their guard. Jesus responds that Satan doesn't have these kind of resources to spare. His house just can't afford to be divided against itself or it will fall. 
No, the exorcisms are proof that he stands against Satan. However, this leads to an obvious question. If exorcisms are proof that one stands against Satan, then, well, doesn't this sword cut both ways? Doesn't this mean that the Pharisees are also against Satan? Now, notice that Jesus doesn't play the same card as the Pharisees. He doesn't accuse them of being satanic. No, his argument is to acknowledge that they really are fighting against Satan, but that this is actually a proof against them that the kingdom of God has come upon them. How so? Well, let's listen very carefully to his argument. He argues that the reason their sons can be effective at all in what they're doing is only because of what he's done. The Jewish exorcists, like the seven sons of Sceva, are having such success only because Jesus is stronger than the strong man and has bound him. That's why his goods are so easily being plundered. Exorcisms are a sign that the kingdom of God has actually come. Uh, There's an important Old Testament background here, and for the sake of time, we can only briefly explore it. In much Jewish thought, mention of Baal or Dagon and uh, the idols of the surrounding nations were not thought to be merely incorrect theological constructs about deity. No, they thought of them as real in a sense. Now, they weren't gods, uh, the gods that they purported to be, but they were real, powerful spiritual entities, demons. They are territorial and have power over places. We can see this, for example, in the book of Daniel. So, in the conquest through Joshua, when God sets up his theocracy, his rule as king, the current powers, the gods, the demons of the land, the idols, need to be cast out. We have already seen that the advent of the kingdom, from the perspective of Matthew, as well as Mark, and Luke, and John, is like an encore performance of the exodus and the conquest, re-entering the land, kicking out the gods, the, the demons that were already there. If the kingdom of God is coming, the rule of God necessarily entails evicting the current powers. So, these exorcisms are proof that God's kingdom has in fact arrived. Now, the Pharisees and the antagonistic Jewish exorcists should have been able to conclude that the incredible amount of spiritual victory that they saw all around them was only possible because God was doing something unprecedented. It was centered in Jesus and his proclamation. And anything they were able to do was just riding the wave of the splash that Jesus had already made. Ah, but that's what they don't want to conclude. It would mean that Jesus is right and that repentance would be necessary. And, well, there's always another way to explain the set of facts. So they conclude instead of granting the legitimacy of Jesus' exorcisms, he must be in league with Satan. And now it's in this context that Jesus warns of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now, there are certainly a lot of unresolved questions about exactly what Jesus means by blaspheming the Holy Spirit and a person never being forgiven, ever. But let me just point out a few observations. First, this needs to be connected with exorcisms. It it, it is connected with refusing to listen to the clear evidence. There's no clearer sign of the kingdom's arrival than demons actually fleeing in Jesus' presence. And that's why Jesus says things like what he does about Jonah and the queen of the south. People are responsible for pursuing wisdom. 
But the Pharisees refuse to listen to the evidence when it's right there in front of their face. And this is part and parcel of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Another important observation is that this needs to be connected with the forgiveness project that Jesus is on. Uh, They have rejected Jesus, whom we've already been shown is the only source of God's forgiveness. Now, the converse of this is that if a person has, in fact, accepted Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, uh, then they don't need to worry that they're in the shoes of the Pharisees uh, and that they have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. However, there are still some other things about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that are less certain. One issue is the extent to which this is repeatable today. After all, the the Pharisees are warned about blaspheming the Holy Spirit because they saw an exorcism. But a lot of us have not seen Jesus perform an exorcism right in front of our own eyes. So that leads to the question, can this be repeated today? Well, it seems unlikely that Matthew and Mark and Luke would want to record this just as a museum piece of interest. Surely they want to compel their readers to be on guard. We're not exactly told, but maybe we don't need to be told. I think the idea is that we're not supposed to have this all figured out. We are supposed to be, well, in a state of fear when it comes to spiritual things in that we can't play fast and loose with the things of God. We need to be very careful to listen to what the Holy Spirit is saying. Another issue is whether or not the door is locked uh, from the inside or from the outside. Certainly, Jesus is saying the door is locked. People who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit can never have access to the forgiveness of sins. But is it locked from the inside? That is to say, is Jesus warning them that, listen, in your spiritual state, this kind of unwarranted skepticism will never let you come to the truth. And if you continue to have this antagonistic attitude towards me, you will never accept me and thus never have forgiveness. Or is Jesus saying something a little bit more that the door is locked from the outside, that they have crossed a line and God in his judgment will blind their eyes lest they see the truth and be forgiven? Well, we we certainly aren't going to resolve all of those matters here, but the takeaway for all of us is that we need to be very careful how we respond to spiritual matters. We can never call good evil. We need to listen very carefully and pay attention to what the Holy Spirit is doing. He is not a person to trifle with. Uh, The Spirit has attested to who Jesus is by showing the arrival of his kingdom. Listen to him while you can. Thank you for listening to the Emmaus Radio Ministry Podcast. This ministry is possible because of the generous contributions from our partners around the world. For more information about partnering with us, please visit emmaus.edu.